Hello and welcome to GMI, the Guitar and Music Institute podcast, episode number 21. Many of us, when we start out playing guitar, have dreams of playing with bands that go all around the world. We're in the private jet, we're playing in huge arenas to thousands of fans, we're recording in some of the best recording studios that the world has to offer with some of the best producers. For most, this is an unattainable pipe dream, but for some, it is a reality, and today's guest on the GMI podcast is Graham Duffin. Graham has done all that and more, and he's going to be talking to me in his Glasgow home. Graham has played with Wet 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 for an unbelievable 33 years. So he's going to be telling us all about life on the road and how the whole system works, how we got started. This podcast is the first of two, as Graham had so much to tell us, and it's an amazing interview. I'm sure you're going to love it. Come over to GMI at www.guitarmusicinstitute.com to see the actual pictures of Graham's studio. He has gold discs, platinum discs, even a golden cassette, which he was very fond of showing. Up all around the room, some great guitars, loads of great, great guitars, and the guitars that he uses when he's working with Wet Wet Wet. So coming up now is my interview, the first of two, with Graham Duffin, guitarist extraordinaire, with Wet Wet Wet. I'm actually here uh, with Graham Duffin in his house, which is A, fantastic for him to allow me to do this, but B, I'm in uh, a room that is just amazing. It's a studio, but it's also got all of Graham's guitars, or at least a good collection of his guitars, and the room is literally festooned with silver and gold discs, and I guess some of them are platinum. Yeah, there's a few. Yes. Multi-platinum. So but there's also a gold cassette award, which I don't think many of those exist. So he didn't even allow me to introduce him, because he wanted to get this gold, the gold cassette. cassette. <laughs> so, Graham, thanks for having me today. My pleasure. So, um, for everybody who's actually listening into this around the world... You must come to the Guitar Music Institute website, GMI website, because I'm going to, hopefully, Graham's going to allow me to take some pictures and we'll put those up and you can actually see where we are. So, yeah, Graham, it's fantastic to have you on the GMI podcast. And in this interview, I just wanted to talk over, really, your musical life. Obviously, we'll be looking at your work with Wet, 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 but also um, I want to look at some of the other areas that you've been involved with, uh, specifically the the foundry and other areas. So I think the first thing to ask is how did you get this uh, musical background? Do you come from a musical family? Well, I think there was a latent musicality there. My... Parents were both musical, but I don't think they had much of an opportunity to express it. It's just my mum bringing up a family and my dad having to work all the hours that God sends uh, in order to try and help to keep it all what did he do together? He was uh, started out as a motor engineer and ended up in management. Okay. So he, he worked hard. 
I read somewhere, and I bring this up because I just want to know if it has had any relevance, uh, that you are a committed Christian, is that right? Yeah, yes, I am indeed. And do you think that has had any influence on the way you listen to and play and music specifically? I think because being a committed Christian, that term... Uh, I tend to kind of stay clear of that because it's been hijacked <laughs> by certain right-wing evangelical factions. So I'm more likely to say I attempt to follow Jesus by the grace of God, which uh, is a, I think that's more fundamentally how I see it. But just because it's it's integral and fundamental to who I am, it'll express in some form or... The, the reason I say that is because I had uh, quite a religious upbringing, and I know Christians don't like talking about Christianity in terms of religion. However, for myself, I was steeped in simple songs, hymns, which apparently were all drinking songs, which I later found out, yes. so people knew... And uh, that constant melodic input mm-hmm. uh, allied with some other stuff in my history, which uh, I won't go into just now, really, I think, helped establish uh, a melodic sense in me that goes maybe beyond what the average Joe has. And I just wondered if your family were Christians and, and yeah. by going to church and having that melodic sensibility mm-hmm. reinforced, if that if you think that may have had an impact on you. Yes, I'm sure it had, and certainly there were some contemporaries of mine and people slightly older who had begun to play the guitar, so that's when I started to pick it up as well. So was it in church you were... um, Yeah, yeah. ...chorus songs? Yep, and that's... This would be uh, pre-Graham Hendrix. Pre Hendrix, uh, him pre, uh, oh, uh, you know the singer song Christian singer is Kendrick. It Kendrick, that's yes. his name. Graham yeah, Kendrick. Hendrix was somebody else. <laughs> yeah, definitely pre Hendrix. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, it was all the old uh, choruses based on well-known drinking songs that you have already referred to, but easy to play on three chords. Yeah, so. At what point did you start to think, hmm, uh, I like doing this so much, I think this is what I want to do with my life? Probably just in my last year at primary school, I was playing Shadows songs and and learning all the Hank Marvin melodies, working it all out and, and destroying several vinyl copies of... Shadows albums in the process. It's really weird you should say that. I, th- I think people of now, young people nowadays don't realise how important the Shadows were because the first ever cassette I had bought was a Shadows mm-hmm. 20 Greatest Hits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this was before cassettes had even been dreamt of, uh-huh. <laughs> or maybe just as uh, as cassettes were coming out. Towards the end of my secondary school, I thought, okay, this is, I do want to take this more seriously. But 
no opportunities for further education or higher education in that kind of music. So you're on your own. But it, that I'd been playing with some fellow musicians from school when uh, we had started kicking around Scotland, Glasgow and Edinburgh mostly. Do you remember with the bands? The band I was in was called Maybe the Floor. Maybe the Floor. Which uh, featured a, a, a fine Emerson-influenced Hammond player, Jim Peden, who had this, this monstrous... Hammond organ. How did you manage to transport it? Well, he had a he had a van. Oh, right, okay. An ancient old Comer van which was a complete death trap. What year are we talking about here? We're talking early seventies, maybe seventy, seventy one, seventy two, maybe up until about seventy five. Hauling an absolutely enormous Hammond organ up. Three flights of external spiral metal fire escape stairs at Nicky Tam's club in Edinburgh in the dark and in the rain wasn't fun. That's forever emblazoned. And my, my hands were were absolutely rock solid and I couldn't even prise my fingers open. It was just, how am I supposed to play after this? But, you know, that's paying your dues. That's what we have to go. I remember the first time I had ever had a gig. I was 16 years old and uh, I remember it was snowing and there was a gas leak some uh, at Chamber Street in Edinburgh and we had to run. To, down to get a second bus out to a place that, called Musselburgh, which is near Edinburgh. And literally, we had to run about three miles with all the gear. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting there, and it, my hands were so cold. Uh, there used to be little metal bars, and I had my hands right up against the bar. I couldn't mm-hmm. feel a thing. So mm-hmm. my heart goes out to you. <laughs> so you're playing in bands. What was your first guitars? Or guitar? What was your equipment? My first electric guitar when I was a very young teenager would have been an echo semi-acoustic with two pickups on it. Not one, two. Not one, but two. Yeah, they're quite good guitars, the acoustic ones. I know some people... Echoes. EKO, yeah? EKO, yeah. They were Italian. Uh, ah, right. Made of some kind of marine plywood uh-huh. uh, with very heavy coats of varnish. Reputedly the only acoustic guitar that you could hold a party on <laughs> and and it survive. They were heavy. They didn't produce a lot of sound acoustically, but the most incredibly easy to play necks yeah. and because they're quiet, they now record very well. What was the action like? Variable. <laughs> that's that's the, the action the, for anyone listening is just the height of the strings off off the neck, and yeah. uh, that can be a, a big factor. I remember my old guitar teacher; he used to play an echo acoustic. Yeah, but it was a good one. It yeah. really sounded yeah. great. Yeah. So could they float well if they were made of marine? Oh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, useful. 
Poland's thinking ships and uh, rising uh, sea level scenarios. Yeah, good, good tsunami type <laughs> events. So get the Echo Twelve string. That's where it's going to be <laughs> when global warming kicks, really kicks in. Sail. <laughs> so I think for a lot of young people today, the the big question is they have a lot of enthusiasm. They're they're working harder than ever before yeah. to be great at their instrument. Mm-hmm. But there is a disjointed sense of how they actually have a career. And you've had an incredible career, and deservedly so. But how did that come about? How did, how do you go from, you know, playing in Mm -hmm. small bands or big bands and uh, playing pubs and that to, Mm -hmm. to actually then moving into something that's almost stratospheric, really? That's a very good question. I think it was being in the right place. At the right time, which I can't really take any credit for. Uh, is it, it was is true? Tom Morton, the, Tom the, Morton, the yeah, broadcaster. Yeah, so. yeah. He was uh, working as a music journalist at that time, and back uh, uh, in my earlier days, uh, I had been accompanying Tom on some of the church circuit gigs. Oh, so there was an actual circuit there of, ch- of yeah, church gigs. Uh, yeah, uh, so, so Tom and I would play at, at church events. Uh-huh. Um, so, so I had... How big was this? Previous history. How, how big was the circuit screen? I don't know. Um, well, there's an honest the, answer, folks. <laughs> the churches, the churches just um, organised youth events mm-hmm. and had various people just uh, playing at at uh, youth events. So would this be the early 80s? This would be late 70s, early 80s, yeah. Okay. Because Tom and I had had a history and, and Tom knew me and he knew my playing. He'd been working as a music journalist and he'd been interviewing this uh, new exciting unsigned Glasgow band wet 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 and he'd been speaking to the manager Elliot Davis and Elliot happened to mention to Tom that the band were looking for a guitar player and Tom gave him my number and said phone this guy for which I'm eternally grateful (laughs) 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 and I'd uh, got a call from Elliot, who at that point conveniently had a flat on Pollockshaws Road, and we arranged for go along for an interview or a um, an audition. How did that? How, what sort of form did the audition take then? Oh, what were the guys like had, when you first walked in? Yeah, well, they were younger than me. I'm nearly ten years older than the rest of the guys in the band, so. It was a case of overcoming that initial hurdle where I had long hair and a beard and they were all trended up the yin-yang. Short haircuts. And, Did they gel in their hair? And everything else, yeah. And I was like, mm, that's not the right image, never mind, <laughs> never mind. So I think after I started playing, it was like, yeah, okay. They could see beyond external appearances. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I was there uh, ever since. 
up to Liverpool six weeks ago. <laughs> we'll come to that. We might come to that. Um, you said there earlier, you said they were an exciting up-and-coming band. But there's lots yeah. of bands that are good. What made them so exciting and what made them so special that they could get beyond their city and, and Scotland? There was quite a unique combination of things. Uh, these songs that they had at that point were very strong. So there was a lot of... Is this part of the Glasgow of sound sort of thing? Uh, not really. It was. It's more classic, uh, m- more Motowny, uh, soul orientated at that time, mm-hmm. and the guys' influences were certainly all from that uh, Motown and Stax era, and Marty, of course having both the voice, the charisma and the showmanship to carry that off was absolutely essential. And I'm like, yep, I'm going to hang on in here and let's just see what happens. So did you find that you had to change your style to suit the music of the band or did they allow you to... Well, the beard came off, the hair got got shorter and, and yeah. But the musical just, style? The musical style, I was always quite flexible um, in terms of I wasn't ever precious about anything that I played. If I was to play something which wasn't appropriate, I had no problems in in taking direction. Give you that direction. The main musical... Probably the main AMD in the band, although a lot of things were fairly democratic, but um, it's probably mostly Graham Clark, the bass player. He's a talented guy. Did he have a vision of a sound that he wanted for the band? Yeah, and I think it it evolved as songs came together. The individual members would have input. The creative process often happened in the studio. <clears throat> okay, so can, can you maybe describe um, that creative process for people? Because it's a big mystery to a lot of people how a, a pop album would come up around. Would someone come in with a, 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 a musical idea or someone come in with some lyrics? How, how would it all work? Oh, it works in very different <clears throat> ways for different people for the Wets it would usually start out as a musical idea a chord sequence and a structure and then melody ideas and sometimes even when the melody ideas started to happen we'd have to change the key t- to suit the the m- melodic ideas. Mm-hmm. So it was c- c- constantly in flux until it was right wrapped and on the shelves. <laughs> and and how did how did the creative how did you know, um, as a band, that 
an idea was fully fleshed out and now that was it. Usually deadlines and budgets, <laughs> ultimately. The Popped In Sold Out album uh, had been through several different producers before we eventually hit on the winning producer combination of Michael Baker and Axel Grohl, who had had some hits as producers in the mid-80s. And it was when Michael and Axel took the production reins for the final part of the process that it all really started to come together. So in terms of producers, are they really acting in the pop world like arrangers or orchestrators? Are they the guys that bring a not just a, a technical aspect to the recording, but also arrangements? Yeah, certainly Axel, he was the programmer and he definitely came up with arrangement ideas and hooks, instrumental, melodic hooks. And would, would he also have give you instruction in terms of what to play like that the sixth thing in uh, uh, what's the song called feel it in my fingers love is all about that was was entirely us Uh no producers involved in that one Uh, how do you feel about the producers do you you feel like they're raining on your parade or uh, uh, that they can stultify things or take the essence of the band away or is it a good thing or do you have to be careful what you say? <laughs> no, a producer that that understands the band and who knows stylistically what he or she wants to achieve, then it can be a very helpful thing because bands could fall into the trap of being over-democratic and then nothing happens because nobody can actually actually agree about anything. Uh, so having someone who can have the final say and, in effect, take that final decision out of a band's hands can be helpful. And was that ever an issue in the band and that they felt the vision of the producers wasn't actually what the band needed? Was there any ever conflict? Yeah, it happened over the the career with some producers who, on paper, it seemed like a good idea. Um, but as the session would progress, it wasn't necessarily a great idea at the end of the day. So but we sorry. did have the, the the amazing opportunity to work with legends such as Nile Rogers. We had a six-week session in New York. How did that go with Nile? It was Fun, uh, but I think he was he was probably at that point that he was partying too much, right? And that had an effect on the yeah, yeah. So so ultimately, you were unhappy with the results as a band. It didn't set the heather on fire, and it wasn't quite what we'd been hoping for. So, are you saying that? He wasn't turning up for sessions or turning up late, or did you just feel his edge was taken away because he was? I think it, it, we didn't uh, get him at his best. He, uh, I mean, it certainly wasn't entirely his fault. Just a combination of factors meant that the results weren't ideal. 
Right, that, that must have been a bit of a blow. <laughs> sort of well, it was certainly from the record company point of view, it was very expensive. I bet. Incredible. And I think he got three songs out of it. And did any of those songs chart? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You're listening to GMI, Guitar and Music Institute, with me, Jed Brocky, speaking to Graham Duffin, guitarist extraordinaire for all these years with Wet, 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 also the owner of Foundry Music Labs, or at least one of the owners. If you want to see more about Graham's images and albums and guitars, come on over to www.guitarandmusicinstitute.com. How many albums have you done in total with Wet, Wet, Wet? Hunters. You kind of put me on the spot there. Hey, <laughs> Bob Dunn sold out. Graham's actually looking around his room right now. Six or seven studio albums. Uh, yeah, lots. Lots. Yes. How many? Uh, so <laughs> I need to count them. That's terrible. I'm so sorry. Graham, in in terms of working with this band as a, a session player, or do you get points on the album? Points uh, just for folks that are listening. People who are involved can ask for points, and and I don't exactly know how. The calculations go. It's I think it's done in the old imperial system of <laughs> of uh, calculations, and that would then mean that the resulting skit sales. I don't know if it comes off MCPS or PRS, but anyone involved who gets a point actually gets a lot of residual royalties as the the lifetime of the albums or or work goes. So, are you on a point system or is it just a fee? In the early days. Uh Elliot took the decision to negotiate on my behalf with the rest of the guys in the band and they agreed one percentage point on the, the album. That was the, the Pop Tins Hold Out album. Now, Elliot was very generous to me in terms of he insisted with the record company that my one percentage point should be a producer point. So, the, which means ah, that, that I would start earning from sale one. Uh-huh. Now, pairing in in mind that the band at that point were probably in debt to the record company of easily over a million pounds probably because of advances and recording sessions which hadn't worked out all the expenses all the everything else so that money has to be paid back to the record company of the band's share which would probably be somewhere about at the most 20%. Of that 20%, they would have to pay the producers normally 4% comes off their allocation. I had a point, Elliot would be on points. So if you take it as having a remaining 15% divided by the four guys and Elliot, that's 3% each, of which they have, first of all, pay back all the expenses. Now, just just for clarity, <laughs> so just for clarity, you talked about the producers getting 4%. Does that equate to four points? Yes. Okay, so a point equals a percent yes. of the total share. Yeah. 
Now, this is all very interesting. Don't know if you're interested wherever you're listening, but I'm interested. Boring. Boring. <laughs> Let's talk about guitars. And we'll There's be... There's a strat over there. And, 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 and we, will be, we will be. But in terms of record company debt, what happens if a band just... Is there a real sense of pressure comes on a band when they know these debts are being stacked up and there's a real need to produce a number, well, a, certainly a top ten hit? Mm-hmm. Um, how does that work its way through within the equilibrium of uh, and and how people work with each other when you know you desperately need a hit and you can see it maybe maybe just mm-hmm. getting away from you? It can be very stressful, and A and R men at the record companies were in a difficult position um, because as soon as you stop spending money and say, okay, that's it, it's going out, then it's basically at that point that the A&R guy is at risk of losing his job. So that is a reality because I've heard this numerous times. You've spent a fortune Uh and the more you spend, the more you want to go on spending and drag it out for as long as you can. And are they spending, in that time of spending for for A&R men, are they spending on themselves as well as everything else? They're spending, ultimately, the band's money because it all gets added up and hopefully recouped. Any advances that are given to the band are recoupable, non-returnable. So... In order for the record company to recoup when the expenses build up to the extent that they had with Wet Wet Wet, I think the more normal thing is for a record company to cut their losses and scrap the whole project. And does that mean that the band actually still owe that money or is it just all wiped out? If it's the record company's decision to, uh, to scrap the project and drop the act, it's the record company's loss because that's why a record company will take an 80% split just because of the risk. And, and is that a normal split between bands and record companies? It was at that Yeah, not point. now, but... but yeah. uh, now everything's changed. changed. Yeah. Everything has drastically changed. So, in terms of wet, 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 yeah, in terms of wet, 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 they, I guess, always recouped then. Yeah, it's um, certainly the first album, and all of the albums of that era all earned pretty well. And and does that sort of build up a store for the record company and for future releases, or is that just forgotten about? If album yeah. ones and two do fantastically well. And then albums three and four don't do as well. Mm-hmm. Are you still under the threat of getting the axe? I think you would probably be on something like a five-album deal where the record company have the first option. If the record company decide not to take the option, then you would shop around for other interested parties. Yeah. But it's a... Uh, we got to 1994, 95, where Love Is All Around was a, an enormous hit. And it was just at that 
point that the band were at that point in their career of uh, renegotiating the contract. Okay. So that was like, yes! Yeah, beauty. <laughs> yeah, beauty. <laughs> just happened at exactly the right time. Our record companies just wolves. <laughs> That's a question. Our record companies just wolves. The played a crucial part in the industry and without record companies you wouldn't have had any records so it's an essential part what happens now most often is a record company won't really express any interest in an act unless you have an already established following unless you have finished marketable product so acts who are at that point have sometimes said well what are you doing (laughs) thanks but we're all right on our own thank you and there are companies who now can provide for a very reasonable fee the infrastructure that used to be handled by record companies that they basically don't do anymore. Label Services, working at the moment with a London-based company called Absolute Label Services, who are marketing a, a Ashton Lane album. It's just at the beginning of an interesting process. Okay, so over all... So, so it was 1983 that you joined the Wets. Did you feel as time went um, on? It was end of 84. Ah, uh, you see? This is, this is what happens when you don't have... Good researchers. The end of of nineteen eighty four. As things went on musically, Graham, did you did you ever feel you were like in a box that you couldn't express yourself totally, or was were you totally cool with whatever they they wanted you to do? Let's face it; it was a great job, a great opportunity to play, perform, a great travelling opportunity, a great recording opportunity to learn in the studio environment from, from a whole host of, of uh, engineers and uh, producers. And I would pay as much attention as I could uh, to what was all going on at the time. So, no, I just... You loved every single uh, minute of it. What's not to enjoy? And, it and great. at its height, what was a typical year, which no doubt just went spinning by, what was a year like for the Wets? in terms of recording, touring, and writing? Usually some residential studio sessions, touring. Our biggest touring was probably Southeast Asia, Pacific Rim tour, which took in Japan, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Taiwan, uh, Singapore, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand... All that whole. So, how long were you on the road for? Not terribly long. That was probably ten or eleven weeks. Wow, that's a lot of countries. So, I think exhausting. Um, well, we had our own chartered litter plane. As you that, do, uh, had all our gear in the the center section and seats at the back end of the plane, flown by an ex. Vietnam Hercules pilot <laughs> called Crazy Charlie Carter. This is something in a movie. Honestly, it was, and it had the wet jet painted on the side. Was it Just, difficult to keep your feet in your, on on the ground at these times? 
Well, when you're flying in a plane, <laughs> literally, yes. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I, I already at that point had uh, an established family at home. I wasn't about to do anything which would jeopardise that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here with the grandkids running up and down the hall. That's true. That, as that's they absolutely are. true. That's what you're hearing in the background, folks. It's the grandkids. Now, unlike some musicians who maybe made some money and just blew it all, you haven't done that. And I wanted to talk to you about, before we get onto the guitars, we'll maybe end on the guitars. Hmm. Can we talk about your... Foundry Music Lab. Foundry Music Lab, yes, 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 yes. I like the word foundry. I mean, is, yeah, it, in an old, music is lab. it in an old industrial it unit? Is, it is. It's out uh, on the old uh, Ravenscraig deal site. So, you're, so it's, you're on a brownfield site? Uh, well, we are on a brownfield site. Any, any funny toxic feelings in the legs when you're standing No, there? Um, <laughs> we aren't actually on the, the brownfield site itself. It's, it's an industrial estate just off that. For anyone out there who doesn't know what we're talking about, Scotland used to have a, a steel industry back in, I think, the 1980s. It was all demolished. And from the ashes of that, there's a, in a place called Motherwell, there's now a, a college, I think, has been put on the site, yeah. including which has a music course. And the foundry music lab that Graham's set up is, as he says, just off to the side of that. Am I right in thinking, uh, I'm going to have to fire this researcher, that it started up in 2006? That's about right, yeah. yeah. What made you do that, Graham? Yeah, it was, I had been uh, working with an engineer, or a producer engineer called Andy Jones, and he had also been involved in the lab was all around as engineer, but Handy and I had known each other for a good number of years. He's a guitar player as well, and we had been working from my basement home studio, and we had just felt that we had outgrown that, and it was time to expand and have a more professional facility. So how, how big is the foundry? Pretty small. Uh, we're 2,000 square standalone unit. I don't know how big that is. It's so <laughs> we have t- uh, two rehearsal rooms at the end of the building. Uh, we have a small multifunctional live room. We have a training room uh, where we run SQA accredited courses in sound production. We have a studio control room. So it's... it's Small environment. And how busy is it? We're very busy just now. So do you get um, lots of musicians coming from the Motherwell Music course? Do they book in as well? Sometimes it's mostly people that either Sandy or I have a direct connection with, have experience of. Everybody from young local acts uh, doing demos to old school rockers. We had old school rocker guitarist. Zal Clemenson in at the weekend. How did that go? Yeah, it was good. It was uh, Sandy that was engineering and producing that session, so I wasn't actually there. So are you down there a lot? Yeah. Um, at the moment, it's so busy that Sandy is mostly working at the studio and I'm doing parallel projects at the home studio. Okay. So it's a, it's a case of divide and conquer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we are uh, getting through the work. 
So it's good, and it's better than having a real job. Absolutely. Now, it might be a good time to talk about Ashton Lane. Ashton Lane, yeah. Uh, this is a, a, when I came in today, it was beautifully sunny, and Graham invited me in, and it was a lovely front room. He gave me two pieces of beautiful artwork, and maybe you could tell us about Ashton Lane, because it sounds fantastic. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed it so far, but yes, it's a bit of a cliffhanger because you'll be hearing the rest of what Graham has to say in the next podcast that will be coming up very soon. Graham will also be talking about all his guitars, and he'll also discuss his work with the Maguire Foundation. That's not to be missed, so I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, please tell your friends about it. Please subscribe if you're listening to this on iTunes. I would encourage you to come over to the GMI website, at www.guitarmusicinstitute.com We've got loads of stuff over there, not just podcasts. If you do enjoy what we do, I would encourage you to visit our Patreon page. The link is on the GMI website under each of the podcast episodes. Anybody supporting us is gratefully received and it helps to contribute towards the costs of creating these podcasts. So I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And you'll hear the rest of that interview very soon on the GMI Guitar Music Institute podcast. So from me, Jed Brockie, thanks for listening. <laughs>